0: If you have your Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 28, Isaiah chapter 28. We're going to be in the whole chapter, 28, verses 1 through 29. Uh, Many of you probably remember, some of you are new to us since then, uh, but we have been making our way through the book of Isaiah, uh, through some of the winter and into the spring, and then I think around May, actually when we moved outside for our Uh, corporate worship services we transitioned to we had done the first 27 chapters of isaiah and then we uh, paused and we transitioned into uh, titus and then some of the psalms and uh, then we did this brief three-week series uh, over the last three weeks and now we are resuming isaiah here in chapter 28 and so i pray and i anticipate that god will bless our time in his word if you don't have your bibles Uh, the words to Isaiah 28 are provided for you in your bulletin as well. So whatever means necessary, I encourage you to follow along. But let's pray, and uh, we will then enter into God's Word together. God, as we open your Word now and we go to Isaiah 28, we humble ourselves under your uh, good and gracious and mighty hand, and we ask for your mercy to be at work within us. We ask for your power to minister to us by your word. We ask for the humility to be grounded in what your word says about us and to us. We ask that you would keep us from any kind of um, presumptuous attitude where we would believe that your word would not have anything for us or believe that the correction that is offered and found in your word would not apply to us. Rather, Lord, let us receive this with humility and with grace and with thankfulness knowing that you are working for our good and for the building up of our souls and our church in your grace and for your glory and for our good and so lord we pray all of this in jesus name amen i want to begin this morning i'm I'm going to take a risk and this is truly a risk but when you preach every week and you you know try to come up with introductions and all that occasionally sometimes you run a little dry and so we're going to mix it up a little I want to ask you to help me with the introduction this morning. One simple question, and I want, you know, just one, two, three people to give an answer, and we'll see how this goes. Be honest, if you or someone else were to face a great conflict or great crisis of belief, maybe even to cause you to walk away from the faith, what would that crisis of belief be? You don't have to be real specific. But does anybody have anything? Loss of a loved one. Any others? Loss of yeah, Liz. Betrayal or or, or hurt maybe in the church. Uh, somebody you trusted in the church committing some kind of wrong against you. Yeah, these are the kinds of things that I envisioned as well. Loss of a loved one, maybe facing some kind of job loss or business crumbling. Maybe some kind of terrible diagnosis that comes upon you. Another one I, I thought of was a lack of, uh, of scientific or experiential viability as you consider the Christian faith. Maybe consider it out of step with our day and age. These are reasonably understandable, reasonably uh, sensible, that if you're talking with somebody about what might would cause them to walk away from the faith, this might be... The kind of answer that you would find. But in Isaiah chapter 28, this is not the answer that we find. In fact, I would say that though some of these things that I have mentioned are things that I would say would would possibly lead me to walk away from the faith, Isaiah 28 presents something that is a little more insidious a little more dangerous to our walk in the faith. And it is not some kind of great tragedy or some kind of great hurt, but it's something far more simple. And that is just boredom with God. Boredom with God. It's possible that you've arrived here this morning feeling rather bored with God. Maybe you say the right things, you attend church, and yet your heart, if you're honest, feels distant. In fact, what I think Isaiah 28 holds up before us, and what I want to argue from our passage this morning, is that boredom with God reveals danger to our souls and invites His discipline upon our hardened hearts. Let me say that again. Boredom with God reveals a danger to our souls and invites His discipline upon Our hardened hearts. So I want you to consider with me whether or not the great danger that you and I might face for our faith might not be some great terrible crisis, but might be something far more subtle, yet maybe something we're far more susceptible to, myself included. In Isaiah 28, we're going to make our way through this whole chapter. And we're going to see boredom with God grounded in our arrogance or the danger of our arrogance. And then boredom of God grounded in disinterest in God's word. So first, boredom with God because of arrogance. Let me give you a little context of where we have been in Isaiah. I know it's been a while since we've been here. In chapter 1 through 27, there was this overall theme, this overarching emphasis of this this idea, this promise of God making a commitment to his people, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of, of, of the divided nation of Israel, God telling them what he will do. He will confront their rebellions, but he will also bring them to grace, bring them redemption through his saving work. But he promises not just to redeem the people of Judah, but he also promises that the reach of his redemption will stretch across nations and will stretch across time that he will ultimately bring people from all corners of the earth. So it stretches from Isaiah's day through the day of Christ and all the way into eternity. And so if Isaiah 21 through 27, excuse me, is this promise of what God will do, Isaiah 28 through 37 is this explanation of how God will do it, how he will begin this redemptive saving work amongst the people of Judah who are hearing this, who feel as if they're okay with God and yet God is going to say to them you and I are not okay you need to hear a warning God speaks directly into the situation of the people of Judah and so look at verses 1 through 4 follow along as I read it and listen to the word of God to the people of Judah verses 1 through 4 and I'll kind of explain as we go to help us understand what's happening here Isaiah the prophet, under the inspiration of God, says, Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. So pause here. God is speaking to the people of Judah. Now, you may not know this, and so this is important for us to understand. Ephraim is is the northern kingdom of Israel. And so the, the crown, the capital of Ephraim, was the city of Samaria. And so God is referencing saying to the people of Judah of the southern kingdom, hey, your neighbors to the north who walked away from me decades and even uh, a, a couple of centuries before, look at them in their arrogance and in their boastfulness and that they, they they are proud of, of who they are. They're proud, pr- proud of the flower of their beauty as a people. But God says in verse one, this flower is fading and they are drunken and their Misunderstanding of who they are. And God says in verse 2, Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he casts down to the earth with his hand. This is simply the promise that God will send one who will wreak judgment and justice upon Ephraim. And then he references the crown again in verse 3, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. And so here's what's happening in verses 1-4. through four. God is saying, look to your neighbors of the north who seem as if life is pretty good for them. They live in a naturally beautiful place. They seem to be pretty secure in their in their, in their protections as a people. They seem to be doing well economically, and they know that they're doing well in all of these things. And God says, and somebody, a nation power, more powerful than them, is going to come and trod them underfoot and is going to eat them like a first-ripe fig before the su- summer. Someone sees it and plucks it off the vine and just eats it as soon as it is in his hand. Then God promises in verses 5 and 6, In that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gates. You see the reference there in verse 5, in that day, kind of of anticipating this future judgment that God will bring about. But God says, and this is something that if you remember from our previous times in Isaiah, you make your way through Isaiah, and you see these promises of judgment and of justice and even uh, the, the, the wrath of God, but then you see these, these unexpected promises of grace and mercy. And so God, in verse 5, In that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown. No longer will they, they, they wear this crown of the, of the drunkards of Ephraim, but he will be a crown of glory. And then you see another word that's common throughout Isaiah, the promise of God to redeem and rescue and set apart a people for himself, this remnant of his people. So he will preserve a remnant who will worship him, and will, will, will survive the outside invasion that is coming. And so here's the point that we have to see. And we have to understand this as we consider our own hearts, as we see God turn the focus, not from the people of Ephraim, but to the people of Judah. And what God says is, don't look just outside of you, but look now, turn and hear this message yourselves. And so you see in verse 7, Isaiah, having described all of this, Uh, uh, describing Ephraim and describing the people to the north. Now look at verse 7, the beginning of verse 7. He says, these also, like, like referencing now the people of Judah. Like imagine you're the people of Judah, I'm Isaiah, and I'm saying, look at Ephraim, look at all this. And now I say, these also. Talking of us. They reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet, the spiritual leaders of the people, They reel with strong drink and they are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. That's a pleasant image. Here's what's happening. Isaiah is now turning the focus to the spiritual leaders of Judah and he's saying the problems you see outside of you are the problems you have inside of you as well saying, you thought you could tame your your drunken arrogance, but it has swallowed you. Verses 7 and 8 is a striking picture of the condemnation of God, where the, the, the little things that they thought they could enjoy, the little things that they thought were given to them for their pleasure, actually consumed and swallowed them up. I don't know how many of you enjoy a good petting zoo. I have found that Young children like petting zoos. But when you think of a petting zoo, you think of the cute little sheep, rabbits, goats, ponies, etc. Little animals you can come pet and rub and they feel all nice and soft and playful and all of that. But nobody builds a petting zoo and then puts lions and tigers and bears in it. Because you reach your hand out to pet and you don't pull your hand back. The hand just became lunch. Here's what Isaiah is showing us. Isaiah is showing the leaders of Judah, and he's warning us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and God's word. He's warning us, he's saying the arrogance that you might be tempted, the the comfort, the security that you might be tempted to shroud yourself in and tell yourself all is well, and I have God and God and 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 I have God at a comfortable, safe distance, and, and I know that 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 everything else about my life is peaceful and calm and gentle. All of this is actually something that you think is easy and and enjoyable, but it is actually something that you invite into your life and it bites your hand off and destroys you. Isaiah warns us against a feeling of sense and security that is actually detached from near devotion and nearness to God to the point that you are actually bored with God because you're enjoying so much other stuff. And what Isaiah is showing us that the lions and the tigers and the bears that would threaten to devour you and me is actually chiefly and foundationally and centrally the person we would look at in the mirror every day. That one who would say, I am bored with God or I am satisfied with pleasures apart from the presence and nearness of God. You cannot release a tiger into your home and expect it not to ravage everything, and yet the dangerous animal wreaking havoc upon the people of Judah was their own sense of uh, self-assurance and unchecked belief in their own wisdom and in their own individual capabilities. Isaiah is referencing the prophets and priests in verse 7 and 8, and he's saying, you guys tell the people a bunch of lies. You tell the people what they want to hear, you live in relative comfort, and yet you live in a lie. I asked at the beginning of our time together, what could possibly lead you away from the faith? And as I thought about that question this week, I thought of things, unexpected loss in my life, unexpected hardship, unexpected trial. But I never thought, that I would be struck by what we see here and that God actually says to the people of Judah, the thing that is leading you away from me is not great loss, but it is great gain. It is not trials, but it is comfort. It is comfort that actually causes you to lose your sense of reality. Now, you might hear this and you might read this. You might say, okay, is this saying that God is some kind of vindictive killjoy? Like, okay, you, you, you can have a good time, but you can only have a good time with me. And so God sees you having a good time with things apart from him or sees you having a good time and only giving him lip service. And, and you might think to yourself, wow, God, like, God's kind of jealous. God is everything that I would teach my child not to be. Where he refuses to let other people do their thing. And he feels like he has to be the center of attention or otherwise he's going to make it rough for everyone. He's going to cause trouble because he's not allowed to be a part of the fun is that what god is saying here is that what isaiah is saying here no this doesn't reveal as much about god in fact let let us hear this actually as a warning we might hear this we might think this as i read it this morning and say wow is god being kind of a uh, or as i read it this week is god being some kind of killjoy the thing about isaiah 28 the thing that it's firstly showing us is not something about god but it's showing us something about ourselves Here's what I mean. We ought to hear the warning of verses 7 and 8, and we don't pray that calamity would come upon us, but we pray for our hearts to have an honest self-awareness that looks at the fall of others and doesn't mock or look down our noses as we would be tempted to do so with those who perhaps uh, are, are of a rival nation or a rival political stripe or something like that, where we would look at other people and say, oh, wow, look at that unfortunate hardship that's come upon them. That would never come upon me because I am like this. And God says, beware of yourself and your unchecked arrogance and pride. Our issue here is not to say what is wrong with God. Our issue here is to look at ourselves and say, but for the grace of God, so would I go, running off to destruction in my own arrogance and in my own boredom with God because I'm so full of myself and so full of the things of this world that I enjoy apart from God. So this arrogant lack of self-awareness is one characteristic of boredom with God, but let's examine a second characteristic of boredom with God that we see amongst the people of Judah and that we must hear warning about ourselves, and that is disinterest in God's word. Boredom with God because of disinterest in God's word. Pick up in verses 9 and 10, and you hear some of these same religious leaders of the people of Judah that Isaiah is addressing, and they're mocking Isaiah, and they're mocking this... This man and his message of God's will and his work for the people of Judah. Look at this in verse nine. To whom they're mocking him. So listen to them in this mocking tone. They say of Isaiah, "To whom will he teach knowledge, and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast." So he's referencing like small children, little babies. And then they say, "For its precept upon precept, upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little." Mocking Isaiah in this word that he would have for the people of God. And now we must be struck by this, and we must hear the mockery of these priests and prophets regarding Isaiah, but more importantly, not regarding Isaiah himself. He's a big boy. He can handle himself. But mocking the God of Isaiah and his word. And this mockery comes through dismissal of God's word or through feeling as if, Oh, it's not understandable. It doesn't have anything for me. I'm just not in accord with it. But through believing that God, who has spoken to us through His Word, cannot speak to us by His power in His Word. Mockery of the Bible is the easy way to not submit to the Bible. When you feel as if you don't understand it, that gives license to feel as if you don't have to submit yourself under it. See, verses 9 and 10 are a gift to all of us because they reveal thoughts of our hearts so often towards the Bible, even if we wouldn't voice them quite like this. The leaders of Judah that Isaiah is addressing are the kid in the classroom who is spouting off about something in class that all the other kids are thinking, but they don't want to say it out loud. And so then the teacher answers, the teacher responds, and we can say, okay, yeah, I see that now. How oftentimes do you, do I, even as a pastor, feel dry in God's word? Or feel as if stealing Isaiah's language, precept upon precept, line upon line, okay, 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 what's it got to do with me? Is that your heart today? Is that your heart at various times in your own spiritual journey, in your own life? Maybe you read the Bible and it sounds more like the teacher in Charlie Brown, where you're like trying to read it and it's like, you know, just like, a foreign language that you don't understand? Do you consider yourself to be too accomplished or too smart or simply too busy for this book to have any relevance or importance or significance or authority in your life? Sure, it has some good nuggets for us about loving your neighbor and doing other things that are wise and good, but you feel as if you have a responsibility to filter the good or the relevant from the bad or the outdated. Does the Bible seem distant to you, or is it a source of delight? Is the Bible simply a cause for analysis, or a text for analysis, or does it lead you to adoration of the one who has given it to us? If I can be honest, when I was in seminary, and throughout my seminary career, I was studying like Hebrew and Greek, and immersed in those languages, and studying deep things of theology, and of philosophy, and of logic, and all sorts of uh, 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 heavy and wonderful topics. But I would far too often find myself sitting in a chapel or service on campus or a church service uh, uh, on Sundays, and I would be listening to sermons. But my study, my seminary expertise became a source of thinking myself superior and not under the authority of God's Word, but rather judging how well others were handling God's Word all the while missing the significance and the importance and the power that it had in addressing me. I was a careful, careful observer, but I was not a receptive worshiper. And Maybe that's the boat that you find yourself in today. You carefully observe God's word, you carefully observe the Bible, you have some kind of respect for it, but you are not a receptive worshiper of the one that God has revealed through his word. Here's the thing that we have to understand. God, the creator of all things, including you and I, the one who upholds all of his creation, the one who knows how many leaves are on the branches of these trees, the one who knows how many hairs are on your head, the one who knows the deepest desires and longings of your heart, the one who has created each and every one of us in his image and has set apart our days and has set us in this place, in this time, in accord with his good purposes, But hopefully, as we're making our way through this, you're starting to see, wow, there's there's something in here for me, even as we're looking at it today. Just because it might take the stovetop a little while to get warm doesn't mean that God's word, wherever we open it up to, can't cook our hearts. This is where it's brought us to today. My favorite movie, my all-time favorite movie. Uh, it was released about 10 or 11 years ago, Inception, starring Leo DiCaprio, and it's this wild kind of psychological mind-bender about influencing people's dreams and changing the future via dreams and all that. It's really good, but I still don't really understand all of it. I had a friend of mine in college. A few of us went and saw the movie, and uh, we walked out of it, and it was just very impressive visually and, and, and the, the, the sound and, and, and all of the, like like the... The, the experience of the movie was impressive, but all of us were, were, were various levels of like what just happened in that movie. Like, like I feel like I saw something amazing, but I don't really know what it was. And so we had one friend in our group in college. We had gone to see it, and we walk out, and we're kind of talking about it in the lobby, and he just walks off and goes to the front to the desk again and buys a ticket to go immediately in to see the movie again and walks right back in to watch it a second time. None of us had the time to be able to do that. But that's the, that, that's the perception maybe we need to pray that God would give us with his word. One of, okay, I don't understand all of it, but there is something here that is of power and of dynamite and of importance and, and significance to me. God, would you free me from a casual disinterest or a dismissive disinterest on my heart that maybe I've justified a boredom with you, God, under boredom with your word, and now I see the disjointedness of that. Ultimately, these priests and prophets have mocked Isaiah and mocked God's word in verses 9 and 10, but listen to Isaiah in verses 11 to 13 as he warns, you will hear from God either through his word or through the hand of his judgment upon you. As he says in verse 11, for by people of strange lips, this is talking about a foreign nation that would come and invade them. So he said, a foreign nation is going to invade Ephraim, and, and you see that and you know that and it doesn't move you, but now you hear a foreign nation is going to invade you. People of strange lips and a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken." God says in verse 13, an inability to understand his word is actually an evidence of his judgment upon us. Paul applied this same warning from verse 13 in 1 Corinthians 14, where he said, if you, if, if you have little interest in God's word because it seems boring or ununderstandable un, un, to you, that's a sign that God's judgment is upon you. That's not a sign to walk away. It's a sign to come to God and plea for the mercy to understand his word and to live under the authority and the grace of his word. This ought to lead us to pray for mercy. Not just to understand, but to apply God's word to ourselves. We don't need great knowledge of his word. We need great humility and trust under his word. And may this be an offer of grace to you. You don't have to know all of the Bible in order to be a Christian. You don't have to know all the Bible in order to be a mature Christian. Some of the most mature Christians are the ones who say, yeah, I don't really understand that. But it's not an attitude of I don't understand so I dismiss and walk away. It's an attitude of I don't understand. God, give me the humility to receive and and to submit myself under the authority of your word and to pursue greater understanding. Verse 12, God offers rest to those who would hear him. But they don't hear it Because their hearts are hardened. And the promise of God's rest that we see in verse 12. This is rest. Give rest to the weary. And this is repose. Those in Isaiah's day, the people of Judah, did not hear this. They did not feel they needed rest from God because they felt restful in their own sense of self-assurance. And yet the offer of God is to come to find rest in Him. Jesus Christ in, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 11 offered all who are weary and heavy laden to do what? Come find rest in Him. And maybe this is where you are as you arrive here today. You see, I don't really understand the Bible much. In fact, yeah, I probably consider myself fairly bored with God. But I'm tired. I'm tired. Life and circumstances and hardship and adversity have worn me out. And maybe the invitation you need to hear amongst all of this is in verse 12, where God says, I will give rest to those who will come to me and find you. He offers rest for our souls. To all who would come to him. So will you take verse 12, the rest that God offers you? Or verse 13, the judgment of God upon those who dismiss or deny or walk away from the rest that is found in him? What we must grasp as we move on to verses 14 to 22 is that a cavalier, mocking attitude towards God will be exposed and judged by God. Listen as I read verses 14 to 22. God promising this judgment in verse 13 to those who deny Him and and refuse to come to Him for rest. In verse 14, He says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Okay, He's addressing the prophets, the priests, there those who scoff, those who deny, those who mock God's word. He said, because you have made a covenant, you have said we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. Now that death, that Sheol, that agreement, is they made a, a uh, we're going to see it in future chapters, but they've made a, a security agreement with a stronger nation to their south. And they thought, hey, we're safe, we're secure. Eat, drink, and be merry, for we're protected. God says, your covenant is with death. These cannot protect you. And the lesson that you as the people of God have to learn is that nothing apart from God himself can protect you. Nothing apart from God himself is worthy of your trust and your reliance upon him. And so he says, you've made a covenant with death. So verse 15, the end of it, when the overwhelming wit passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge. And in falsehood, we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will, will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line. And hell will sweep away the refuge of lies, and water will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, as you will be beaten down by it. As often as, if, as it passes through it, as if, as it passes through it, excuse me, will take you, from morning by morning will pass through, by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Parazim, as in the valley of Gibeon. He will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed and to work his work. Alien is his work. Now therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a, a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. What is happening here? Here's what we must grasp. God says you can take security, you can take refuge in your clever devices, in your wisdom, in your might, in your strength, or in the wisdom, might, strength of those around you. You can take comfort in all of these things, or you can rest and take refuge in Him. But you cannot do both. Where does your heart hope in? God offers in verse 16, He says, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. That stone, that cornerstone, the New Testament tells us that this one is Jesus Christ Himself. He is our sure foundation. He is the one to whom we can come and find rest in. As we read from Hebrews 9, He is our rest and our refuge he is the one who is the final sacrifice for our sins. He is the one through whom we are acceptable and pleasing before God. And the one to whom, through whom we can enter into the presence of God and find our rest. And look at verse 16 at the end of it. He says, whoever believes will not be in haste. Once again, this message of rest, you will not be hurrying, scurrying all about. Trying to find peace and security everywhere but apart from God. The truth is, you are either resting in Jesus Christ or you are resting in something apart from God. If you are resting in Christ, may your heart find peace and contentment in Him. If you are not resting in Christ, then your heart is scurrying about, whether it be in relationships, whether it be in the affection of others, whether it be in how the market is doing or how your business is doing, whether it not be in in, uh, uh, your good health or the good health of your loved ones, whatever it might be in, you are seeking rest in other things. Or you are seeking rest in God. If you are resting in God, your soul can find true rest. If you are not seeking rest in God, all these other things are always going to be causing your heart to be scurrying about a million miles an hour. And this is something that struck me this week as I prepared this because I thought to myself, as I thought of all the things that would potentially lead me astray, these are all things that can come and go, that can be taken away. Tragedy comes and go. Hardships comes and go. All of these things can come upon us Unexpected, unintended, but the one thing that cannot be taken away from us, though our flesh and our heart may fail, God is the strength of our heart forever. God Himself cannot be taken from you. He cannot be taken from me. He offers us rest in the presence of Himself. So our boredom with Him is a refusal to rest in Him, it is a refusal even to submit and to surrender. These things, whether they be our health, our relationships, our desires to submit and to surrender those relationships and desires to him. So what rules your heart? I can't answer that for you, but Isaiah asked that question of the rulers of Judah, and he asked that question of you and I. Are you building the house of your life on the foundation of Jesus Christ, that sure and tested cornerstone, or are you building it on the sand that will sink? Listen. Listen to how he describes building it upon something apart from Christ. Look at verse twenty. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. Have you ever? I'm six foot three. I've slept in beds that were too short for me. Have you ever done this? It's not a good night of sleep. Have you ever been in a cold bed and you were trying to get yourself warm, and the blanket, no matter how much you pulled, it, it was either going to cover your your, your head and your upper body or your legs and your lower body, but you couldn't get both. That is the imagery that Isaiah is using here. Hey, you want to rest in how, how successful you are in the business and the finances and, 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 and how comfortable you are and how good the market is doing? Rest in that. And then you go to the doctor next week and you get a bad diagnosis. Or you want to rest in how good your health is or how good your relationships are? Rest in those things until you lose your job next week and then everything spirals out of control. He's saying it is impossible for our hearts to find their rest in anything apart from Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our faith and our hope. And he's saying when you in your life feel yourself scurrying all around and you feel as if I can't pull the blanket over myself to keep me entirely warm, he is saying that is an invitation to come find rest in Christ. And to get off of that bed, to cast off that blanket and come to Christ and find rest for your hearts in him. So we recognize this and, 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 and we diagnose this. We diagnose our possible boredom with God and our disinterest in His Word and in our uh, uh, arrogance and feeling as if we don't need Him. But we close and we conclude, I'm going to be very quick with this, we see that there is a grace for God's people as we are convicted over our boredom with God. And that grace is not found in, in, in what we might expect, but it is found in the blessing of His discipline upon us. Now, discipline is a word that has all sorts of negative connotations. But just as a good father disciplines his children appropriately, we find God disciplines his children rightly and appropriately. And we find this in verses 23 through 29. Real quick, let me point out one thing. In verse 21, I just want to make note of this. We don't have time for it, but here's the seriousness by which God approaches or addresses his people who would deny him and not trust in him. In verse 21, it says the Lord will rise up as on Mount Paran or as in the Valley of Gibeon. He will be roused. What he's referencing, there are previous victories that God accomplished for his people, military victories for the people of Israel in, in days of old. But he promises here to rise up against his people if they will not rest in him. That's why it says to do his deed, strange is his deed, and his work, alien is his work. God is saying, I will turn my judgment upon you if you will not come to me and rest. So okay, now let's see his judgment. Lastly, in verses 23 through 29. His judgment. Remember God's promise in verse 5 that he would uphold a remnant? Verses 23 to 29 reveal the depths of God's resolve to rescue and redeem, and that he promises perfect, wise, precise, healing discipline for his people. For those who are disenchanted from him, for those who are bored with him. He promises to renew their hearts in Him. He gives two farming illustrations. The first one in verse 23. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill and sow cumin and put in wheat and rose and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Listen carefully in this. We want to listen carefully as verse 23 says, Give ear, hear my voice, give attention, hear my speech. Verses 23 to 26 explain to us that that God disciplines His people like a wise farmer not seeking to destroy, but a wise farmer seeking to plant new seed and to grow. That thing that God may have taken away from you and it may have been very painful, that was something that you maybe were perhaps trying to rest in apart from Him, and He offers you Himself. So He renews that, that He might rebuild your heart and resting in Him and not in that other thing. And He is the good farmer who grows the seed. When God rips down the towers of security that we once rested in the shadow of, it's not to leave us exposed to the elements, it's that we might rest in the shadow of His mighty wing. As you agonize over the trials of your day, do you trust that there is grace for today and tomorrow, or do you feel that God's love and grace are gifts of old that have passed their expiration date for you. One of the great ways that we grow bored with God is believing that His power and His supernatural work in our hearts that He did in days of old no longer applies to now. And yet what we see here is that God is always faithfully at work in His people, even His people who are bored with Him. And that He promises supernatural grace in rebuilding and rehealing His people. Take heart in verses 23 to 26. God plows and God gives growth in the Christian life. We must understand this corporately in the highs and lows of the church. God is always working towards a purpose for us, that purpose of making us more and more into being like Christ in our hearts and our attitudes and our passions and our spirit. And may we know that pain is worth it, the discipline of God's hand is worth it when it leads to new birth and new trust and new joy in Him. But we see that He not only promises to discipline to rebuild but we also see he promises to discipline wisely in verses 27 to 29 dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod so he's describing this threshing sledge and this cartwheel these mighty farming implements but he says there are seeds that these destroy these implements they work on some but not on others but he says i know the farming implements that your soul needs I do not judge you with a one-size-fits-all. I do not discipline you in a manner in which it is exactly consistent with all who are around you. I discipline you in, in a wise manner as a loving Father does and as a farmer who knows what specific seeds are needed, what specific tools and implements must be used. And so perhaps you realize now, even in this moment, that you are walking through a season of God's discipline upon you. May this change your understanding and perception of yourself in this stage in life. We must have a proper understanding of blessings and discipline. In fact, we must know, see this, our normal understanding of blessing is like, oh, God's favor is upon me. Look at all the blessing he's given me. And God, discipline or hardship we might be experiencing would be, oh, God's judgment and his wrath is upon me. What have I done to in, invoke this ire? But we actually see in Isaiah 28 as reversed. God is saying his discipline is on those who have rejected him and who arrogantly have no use for him but his love is upon those whom he is disciplining and promising to bring back to himself. May God give us that heart in our day, in our discipline that we endure. So what would cause you to fall away? Trial or hardship? What would cause you to fall away? Be careful. Discipline is what brings life. Let us hear this and praise God. Boredom in God reveals danger to our souls, but it invites discipline of God upon our hearts. May we welcome His discipline. And may we welcome it as it is given to us via His Son who in our place suffered the right wrath of God upon our sin that we might not be destroyed but that we might be this remnant that Isaiah spoke of whom God promises that He loves too much to leave them in their disinterest in Him but promises to build them in His grace, and for His glory, and for our good. Let's pray together. Oh God, You are good and You are gracious. You are too good, too gracious to give us all the things that our hearts want and all the things that our hearts might pray for and feel as if, I need this to be happy. I need this to be at peace with You. You love us too much to do that. You love us so much that You promise to give us Yourself. And as the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, says, you love us too much to show us that that in yourself the things of this earth grow strangely dim in light of your glory and grace. And so, Lord, help us to address perhaps boredom that we might have with you. But to know that boredom is an invitation to repentance and to life. And to know that the things of this world that tire and rot and decay. May they be good gifts to us that show us a savior who grows all the more resplendent. And welcomes us with a warm embrace. Not to all who have him all figured out and all who know his word perfectly. But all who will humble themselves under him and come and live in his grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.